Friends, would you open with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 13. Jeremiah chapter 13, we're going to read verses 15 to 17. Hear now God's word. Hear and give ear. Be not proud, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings darkness, before your feet stumble on the twilight mountains, and while you look for light, he turns it into gloom and makes it deep darkness. But if you will not listen, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. Let's pray together. You say, hear and give ear, be not proud, for the Lord has spoken. That's our prayer this morning, Lord, that you would, in each of us, crucify pride. It would be put to death, that you would give us ears to hear afresh what you would say to each of us this morning. We ask that, we plead for that, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, David Foster Wallace, the author David Foster Wallace, I think, was one of the greatest writers of the last hundred years. A phenomenal author. He wrote the book that might be familiar to some of you, Infinite Jest. I read about two-thirds of Infinite Jest, and I did it for two reasons. Number one, I thought the book was pure genius. And number two, I wanted to tell people that I had read some of Infinite Jest. I want to be the kind of person that reads David Foster Wallace. Well, Wallace actually spent a decade working on his last novel, The Pale King, but he never finished it because he took his own life in 2008. Before he did that, he laid out the manuscript, his working material for his wife and his agent to find and put together and ultimately to publish. That was his idea. But there was a problem. Wallace is not known for linear plot lines. He's not very clear chronologically where he's going in his stories. And when he left his manuscript, he left it in piles. There were piles on his desk. There were piles inside of his desk. There was material on his computer. There was material on disks. There was a scrapbook that had some notes and sketches and ideas. All told, there was at least a thousand pages in material in what might have been 150 distinct chapters. Now, you recover that as an agent and a publisher, and you know the worth of David Foster Wallace, and so you get to work, and it was a Herculean effort to publish The Pale King, which is a book that's ultimately half the size of the material that they had to work with. You read that book, and you can actually only guess at what the author originally intended would be the order of that book. We can only guess and assume and argue about what he had intended. I say all that because David Foster Wallace and the prophet Jeremiah share this in common. Neither of them organized the work that bears their name. Jeremiah's ministry, it lasted 40 years in a very intense time in Judah's history. And at the end of those 40 years, we know that he is abducted 
he's taken to Egypt and he goes missing where he is presumed dead. He never gets to come back and organize the book of Jeremiah, all the things that he had said that the Lord had spoken. He doesn't get the chance to put this book together. Instead, an editor does that. We can only assume that that editor was Baruch, his friend and scribe, a guy we're going to meet later. But that means you have an editor under the guidance of the Holy Spirit who is putting the book together as we have it today. Because of that, I want us to think of the book of Jeremiah not as a linear plot line. We're not reading events chronologically as they occur. It's not a timeline. It's more like a scrapbook. The editor is taking pieces from different times in history and he's organizing those pieces around distinct thoughts and distinct themes. If you're wondering why in this series we've tended to preach paragraphs from Jeremiah, I just read three verses and not entire chapters, this is the very reason. You look at chapter 13 and it looks like the editor drew from five different places and put things, these things together in one chapter and they're all organized around a similar theme, but I just chose one of them to examine more in depth this morning. It not only leaves us to speculate at how the thing is organized, but it also leaves us to make educated guesses about where we stand historically in chapter 13. Now this chapter, it speaks about the downfall of the king and queen in verse 18. It speaks about impending doom from the north, who we know is going to be Babylon in verse 20. And so we're making an educated guess, and I share this guess with others, that Jeremiah is speaking these words during the reign of Jehoiakim in 597 B.C. During the reign of Jehoiakim in 597 B.C. So we're still about 10 years out from the time that the kingdom of Judah is going to be absolutely obliterated. We still have a decade of time left of Jeremiah's ministry here. Now, I don't want you to confuse the wicked king Jehoiakim with his dad, the wicked king Jehoiakim, right? I see on some of your faces that you were confusing those two. Don't do that. Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim. We're going to meet Jehoiakim later in this book, but we get introduced to something about his son right now. Y'all probably don't know much about the king Jehoiakim because he was 18 years old when he became king and he reigned in the southern kingdom of Judah for three months. Like in the time of your summer break, he was crowned king and then he was put into shackles and he was drug off to Babylon. That's how volatile things are in Jeremiah's day in Judah. You can read about Jehoiakim in 2 Kings chapter 24. Babylon's king, Nebuchadnezzar, he comes to Jerusalem. He lays siege to that city. He surrounds the city. They finally run out of food and water. They need to give up. And so when Nebuchadnezzar enters the city of Jerusalem, he absolutely plunders it. He not only goes for the temple and takes its wealth, he also takes the best and the brightest of its citizens and he brings them back to Babylon. 
Now, Nebuchadnezzar had already done this once before. He had already invaded Jerusalem. He had already exiled some of its citizens. And when he did that, he brought back to Babylon people with him like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He did that once. Now he came again during the sun's reign. When he comes a third time, he will destroy Jerusalem and he will exile the people from there ultimately. Jerusalem is absolutely devastated. Because of her rebellion, she has felt the heat of God's wrath. She's not destroyed at this point, but she is destitute. She's lost her pride. She's lost her king, she's lost her wealth, her best soldiers, even her skilled craftsmen and blacksmiths. I mean, she's barely alive at this point. She's under the thumb of Babylon. She's on life support, and still she resists God. Still she rebels against God. Does it not amaze us, every single one of us, at the human capacity to endure the self-inflicted pain that comes from running from God? That we as human beings, we have something in us where we would rather stay apart from God, run from God, be distant from God, even with the pain and the suffering then that brings, than to humble ourselves in the presence of God and come near him. I've got a friend of mine who is in a recovery group, and they've got a saying in that group. When somebody comes and they join, and it looks like that person is not serious about sobriety, they join for a season, and then they kind of flake out, and they leave the group. The group kind of says about that person, it looks like they need to find more pain. You get what they're saying there? It it looks like this person is not at the bottom yet. They haven't wrecked enough of their life. They have not felt the full weight of what they're doing to themselves. And until they hit the bottom, they're not ready to be here and they're not ready for sobriety. It's harsh, but it's true. They need to go find more pain. That's where Judah is right now. She's absolutely devastated, but she needs to go find more pain. Look at verse 15. Hear and give ear, be not proud. Pride stops up our ears. It keeps us from hearing God rightly. Proud people, they put words in God's mouth and they hear what they want to hear from God. So he continues, verse 16. Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings darkness, before your feet stumble on the twilight mountains. Now this scene, it would have been familiar to every single Israelite, what he's talking about in verse 16. You're out and you're walking or you're working, you're in the mountains, you're in the pre-dawn, and so it's dark and you're kind of fumbling and feeling your way around, but you know that any moment the sun is going to rise and when it does, you'll finally be able to see where you are and where you're going. But verse 16 continues, in flagrant sin... The sun doesn't rise as we expect it to at dawn. It sets. While you look for light, he turns it into gloom and makes it deep darkness. Literally, that verse reads like Psalm 23. He makes it the shadow of death. You're looking for dawn and you find death. 
This is terrifying imagery. Dawn turning into darkness. It's like time moves backwards. It's almost like creation is undoing itself. I see this theme vividly in the book of Jeremiah. Sin sets itself against creation. Sin, it makes war with creation. Wherever you see sin flourishing, you see creation languishing. Wherever sin flourishes, you see creation languish. We mean that metaphorically, we mean that physically, we mean that spiritually. Now, that's an extremely dense thought to get our minds around, but I want to give us a few examples. I want to compare the seven days of creation that we find in Genesis over and against the days of chaos that we find in the book of Jeremiah. I'm going to take the days of creation backwards as we see sin beginning to undo what God has done in his creation. Think about this. Think about these examples that you find from the book of Jeremiah alone. On day seven in creation, we know that God created the Sabbath. He set it apart and it was a day of rest. But in Jeremiah 17, the whole city of Jerusalem, they flagrantly break the Sabbath and they work on the day that God has pleaded with them not to. On day six in Genesis, God makes animals and man and ordains marriage. But chapter 16 is a very sad one. God forbids the prophet Jeremiah to take a wife and he forbids him to have children of his own. In fact, Jeremiah around this time, he rused the day that he was born. He wished his mother had never given birth to him. It's like God's command in Genesis to be fruitful and multiply is being repealed for a time in this judgment. On day five, God made the sun, the moon, and the stars. In chapter 15, Israel's life is compared to the sun that falls from the sky in full day. On day four, God makes plants. In chapter 14, the ground is dismayed. 14.6, there is no vegetation in Israel. On day three, God formed and fashioned the earth. And this is the most vivid example because in chapter 4, Jeremiah, he cries out in anguish over the sin of the people and he says, I looked and behold, it was without form and void. Jeremiah is speaking the words of Genesis 1-2 that before God created, the earth was without form and void. In sin... Creation reverts to the chaos of pre-creation time. On day two, God makes water. Chapter 14, a drought comes and there is no water. On day one, God makes light. And here in chapter 13, dawn brings not light, but the shadow of death. God makes himself plain in his creation. 
God is for life and he's for light. He's for joy and fruit. He is for beauty and for family. God is for wealth and for justice. God is for everything that is true and honorable and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and glorious. Wherever you see families thriving, where you see neighbors looking out one for another, where cities become places of justice and mercy, where farms and factories are places of dignity, God's work is at hand. Life in God is life and life abundant. That's what he created the world to be. That's what he created humans to do as we inhabit the world. That's why sin is so insidious. Sin doesn't come to offer alternative lifestyle choices. It comes to steal and kill and destroy. Sin is not done with us until we are at war with ourselves, at war with our families, at war with our neighbors, at war with our employees, at war with creation itself. Sin is not done until dawn brings darkness and the shadow of death. The theme of creation unraveling under sin makes us sit up and take notice of the opening paragraph of John's gospel. Listen to Jesus coming and listen for the theme of creation and light. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the light of the world. You could take that theme, and you could summarize the entire Bible all 66 books in three sentences. God makes light. Man runs from God into utter darkness. And Jesus comes to turn the light back on. That's what he comes to do. Judah can't hear this. Judah is not ready for this. From where she stands, God's world it sounds stifling and oppressive. Life in God, it sounds like it's, it's ruining her freedom of choice. The world of sin, that sounds enticing and enriching because the kingdom of Judah needs to find more pain. She stands in the book of Jeremiah as an anti-Ebenezer. She is a warning to everyone who comes after her. Behold and beware of life outside of God himself. Judah is clearly in the wrong. Judah deserves whatever God is going to bring to her. She needs to lay in the bed that she herself has made. And so when we turn to verse 17, we kind of wince for the hammer to fall, right? We wince for God's seething wrath and judgment. But that's not what happens in the text. Look at verse 17. But if you will not listen... 
my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. What I want to know more than anything else about our passage is this. Who's crying? Is this the prophet Jeremiah who weeps? Or could this possibly be God himself who sheds tears? Because the way the book is organized and put together, the voice, it switches from Jeremiah to God and back to Jeremiah without warning. It does that through the entire book. Sometimes it's God speaking and then it switches right to Jeremiah. Sometimes it's right back to God. And so it's highly ambiguous who is doing the talking in Jeremiah chapter 13. But I wonder if that's intentional. I wonder if that ambiguity is intentional because I wonder if we are left to think that it might be both. Jeremiah is dubbed the weeping prophet. He has wept for the sins of Israel. He makes me think of the Apostle Paul who cries out in Romans 9 over unbelieving Israel, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. This could be Jeremiah as he looks out over the sin of Judah and her refusal to repent and he watches in horror and weeps. He weeps for the city of Jerusalem. But the alternative to Jeremiah is almost too much to bear. What if this is God? What if this is God speaking about the tears that he sheds for the sin of his people? Ezekiel chapter 33, 11 says, As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die? Luke nineteen forty one. Jesus crests the mountain and looks over the city of Jerusalem and he weeps. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. God grieves a lost soul. Now, if you gave me 10 minutes and a sledgehammer, I could make this passage fit a clean kind of Calvinism that ceases to wonder in the sovereignty of God and the salvation of souls but I dare not tamper with this text. As one commentator writes, in judgment, there is no grim pleasure in heaven or earth, nothing but the secret sobbing of the divine shepherd and his servant. Let's pray together. Father, I would rather see you scream and rage and yell and punish and withhold in my sin than to think that you shed tears over my sin and the sins of this city and the world. That you have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That you plead that we would come to repentance. That we would know you as the one true God. 
You weep in such a way, and I pray that you would make us a church who weeps. Weeps first and foremost over our own sin and rebellion, and then we weep over the soul of our neighbor, that they would come and they would know you, the one true God. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.